everybody and welcome to season 5 episode 2 of Straight Talking English. I am your host Catherine STR8 Talk English on Twitter straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. You can buy my books on straighttalkingenglish.co.uk slash books or you can search up on Amazon the full context. The book that goes along with this series will be ready sooner than I expected. It turns out, for those of you following my life, my editor does not have COVID. So she was able to take a lot of Lemsip, have some uh, ginger and honey tea and get me my nearly final draft back to me, which is terribly exciting. So the Frankenstein book will be with you shortly. I'm also on YouTube. If you want to check out some of my context videos, I'm hoping to make some for this series. But we'll see how my time goes since apparently my day job is kicking off, which is always very nice. I also have a Patreon where you can commission an episode on anything you like and a coffee account. So if you go on straighttalkingenglish.co.uk forward slash support the show, then you can drop me a little donation if you like what I do. Massive, massive thanks to our voice actor today, Spencer. Thank you ever so much, Spencer. Now, serious moment for a second. Spencer would like me to tell you all about a cause he very, very much believes in, which is actually very, very helpful to you guys. So let's say you have been bereaved. The coroners have come to take away your loved one's body. But what do you do now? Like, I don't know about you, but I would have literally no idea what to do in that scenario. You can contact the coroner's support service on 0300-111-2140 or their helpline on 0300-111-2141 and they will explain the whole process to you. In the unlikely event there's some kind of inquest, they can guide you through everything you have to do. It's a tremendous cause and not one that I knew about in the slightest. So if you're in that situation, scooch yourself back about five seconds, write down that number, share it with people you know, and hopefully we'll be able to help some people, especially since we are still in the middle of COVID-19 lockdown, at least I am, maybe we'll be able to help some people, maybe we'll, we'll be able to make the world a little bit of a nicer place. Speaking of nicer places, da, 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 da. honestly, when I was recording a radio show with my best friend to contribute to um, radio Warwick their 50th anniversary party she said I was the master of segue leaks and I like to think I am speaking of nice things I'm going to talk to you today about romanticism now do not mistake yourselves when I say romantic poets I do not mean hearts flowers valentine's package trip to Paris and apparently Paris is horrible to be in on valentine's day because it's packed out with couples what I mean when I say romanticism, romantic poets, is people who were involved in a very specific movement in the 18th and 19th century. Late 18th century, we want to talk about people like William Blake, William Wordsworth, who came up in our last series with their poetry included in the AQA Poetry Anthology. And also Samuel Taylor Coleridge. He's great with the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And that comes up quite a lot in Frankenstein. 19th century, we've got the second generation. Mr. Percy Bysshe Shelley, of course, the husband of our Frankenstein writer, Mary Shelley, John Keats and Lord Byron. Bestie, well kind of frenemy <laughs> of the Shelleys. Well okay okay what is romanticism? Well you've got our enlightenment 
rationalism. Do you remember that from last week? The idea that everything can be measured, what we trust is our own experimentation, our own senses. If it isn't coming from your own observation, don't believe it in the slightest. But these outsiders, these romantics, were thinking about the qualities that can't be measured. They were thinking about the imagination. They were thinking about their emotions. The historian Stephanie Forward said, in England, the romantic poets were at the very heart of this movement. They were inspired by a desire for liberty. They denounced the exploitations of the poor. There was an emphasis on the importance of the individual, a conviction that people should follow ideas rather than impose conventions and rules. The Romantics renounced the rationalism and order associated with the preceding Enlightenment era, stressing the importance of expressing authentic personal feelings. They had a real sense of responsibility to their fellow men. They felt it was their duty to use their poetry to inform and inspire others and change society. And I like that as a definition, I really like that. But it's kind of assuming that the Romantics are a homogenous group of writers, they're all really the same. And it's honestly not the case. They disagree about a lot of things. Some people are like, we love the French Revolution, but that comes from Enlightenment thought. Some people are like, we take inspiration from the divine. Think William Blake and his inspiration from the angels he saw in Peckham Common. And now I can't go past Peckham Common Park without thinking of that, and neither can you now. It's more the definition we want to think of is the, well, the historian Tim Blanning says it perfectly. He'll say it way better than me. He says, no longer does the artist carry around a mirror to hold up to nature. A better metaphor for the creative process is the lamp which shines from within. So rather than external things inspiring you, what inspires you is your own self, your own emotions. Other features that the Romantics did have in common was a desire to convey emotion or provoke an emotional reaction. It means breaking away from the past, from neoclassical, and that means the traditions of Greece and Rome which are carried forward. Breaking away from this neoclassical, consciously moving forward and away from the Enlightenment, it changed a lot. It changed fundamentally everything in society when we're talking about nature, emotion, reason, and also the individual. We've got to think of a source of the inspiration is nature. This is one thing that always bothers me about William Wordsworth. And if you re-listen to my episode on Wordsworth, he loves nature. Everything that is natural in this world, he blimmin loves breaks with this tradition of like history and allegory to inspire people. Things like, oh, we're going to paint a scene from the Bible or we're going to paint William the Conqueror. Now, we're going to talk about the natural world, things we can actually see. 
Artists like Constable and Turner are involved in this as well. Nature is not only beautiful, but it's powerful, unpredictable and destructive. The Enlightenment sees the natural world as being like something we can classify. This is the era of the first encyclopedia. Yeah, look at that tree. It's an oak tree. It falls within the category of like deciduous, of like big trees. I'm no botanist. But romantics are viewing it for what it is. Linked to this idea of nature as so powerful is perhaps the emotion that's most difficult to describe to people. And that emotion is the sublime. The sublime is sort of happy, sad. It's terror that provokes pleasure or promotes pleasure. Edmund Burke, the philosopher who's gonna come up a lot since he had beef with Mary Wollstonecraft, first articulated this idea in a book called A Philosophical Enquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful, written in 1759. Let's hear a little bit more from Edmund Burke. Whatever is fitted in any sort to excite the ideas of pain and danger, that is to say, whatever is in any sort terrible, or is conversant about terrible objects, or operates in a manner analogous to terror, is a source of the sublime. That is, it is productive of the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. I say the strongest emotion because I am satisfied the ideas of pain are much more powerful than those which enter on the part of pleasure. Without all doubt, the torments which we may be made to suffer are much greater in their effect on the body and mind than any pleasures which the most learned voluptuary could suggest, or than the liveliest imagination and the most sound and exquisitely sensible body could enjoy. Nay, I am in great doubt whether any man could be found who would earn a life of the most perfect satisfaction, at the price of ending it in the torments, which justice inflicted in a few hours on the late unfortunate regicide in France. But as pain is stronger in its operation than pleasure, so death is in general a much more affecting idea than pain. Because there are very few pains, however exquisite, which are not preferred to death. Nay, what generally makes pain itself, if I may say so, more painful, is that it is considered as an emissary of this king of terrors. When danger or pain press too nearly, they are incapable of giving any delight and are simply terrible. But at certain distances, and with certain modifications, they may be, and they are delightful, as we everyday experience. You need to know this sublime in order to effectively express your emotion, which is what a romantic poet would say. To feel this ultimate emotion, you need to interact with nature. Everything humanity creates is corrupt. The world only exists as it should be in natural settings. The critic Robert Mayo says the familiar conviction that nature is beautiful and full of joy, that man is corrupted by civilization, that God may be found in nature, that the study of nature not only brings pleasure, therefore, but generates moral goodness. And by going out into nature, we might have a chance to experience the sublime. Coincidentally, nice segue again. Thank you. When Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley went on their holiday to Germany, more on Mary Shelley in a couple of episodes time, they went 
to the mountains. So lovely. Percy Shelley was so moved by his experience of seeing the Alps and experiencing this sublime that he wrote a long and very beautiful poem called Mont Blanc, which shows the awe, the awe and terror which he felt upon seeing the mountain Mont Blanc. This is 100% echoed in the bit in Frankenstein where he climbs the mountains and meets and chats to the monster. So that is based on this real sublime experience. But the sublime is not necessarily coming from without. It can also be from within. Bunk, bunk, bunk. This is me attempting, slightly backtracking on myself, this is me attempting to do a nice little link into a very, very, very important romantic painting. So this painting by John Henry Fuseli, which I've put up as the image for this podcast, so you can have a little look if you go back to what the screen you're playing it on. It's called The Nightmare. It features a woman swooning backwards while a little gnome sort of guy sits on her chest and a horse kind of stares at her. I mean, you're going to have nightmares if there's a gnome sitting on your chest. I mean, obviously, I know it's metaphorical. Fuseli was very much involved with Mary Shelley. He was her mum's ex-boyfriend and after Mary Wollstonecraft married William Godwin, she obviously was more mature than me and she stayed friends with her exes. Unlike me, and I'm like, if you're an ex-boyfriend, you are dead to me. I shall purge your phone number and everything that reminds me of you. Mary Wollstonecraft was obviously a very sensible person. This image of the sublime, this painting called The Nightmare, would have been hanging, or at least a copy of it, in Mary Shelley's house growing up. And it comes into Frankenstein three times. This image of the sublime, this romantic image, comes in. First time it arrives is after Victor runs away from the newly animated creature. He collapses into sleep with a nightmare in which he kisses Elizabeth, who turns into the corpse of his dead mother. All right, that itself is where you call your therapist. He wakes up and finds the creature staring at him. Yeah, 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 like the scary horse in this painting. It comes again where he promises to create a bride for the creature who appears outside the laboratory and creepily stares at him. There's so much creepy staring. The last time is the corpse of Elizabeth who is arranged, according to the book, in the same pose as the woman in the painting. So in Frankenstein, we have this moulding of romanticism as an art movement and romanticism as a written movement. Romantics were a little bit obsessed with this idea of a genius as well. There are special, radical people who are inevitably men, because this is the 18th and 19th century, who are born to reshape the world. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, we heard a little bit from him last week, defined this genius in his Dictionary of Music. He said, seek not, young artist, what meaning is expressed by genius? If you are inspired with it, you must feel it in yourself. Are you destitute of it? You will never be acquainted with it. The genius of a musician submits the whole universe to his art. He paints every piece by sounds. He gives the language even to silence itself. He renders ideas by sentiments, sentiments by accents, and the passion which he expresses are drawn from the bottom of his heart. Voluptuousness, as in like being a curvy girl, 
okay, whatever, by his assistance, receives fresh charms. The grief to which he gives utterance excites cries. He is continually burning and he never consumes. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. I mean, I would love to say that as a writer, I am a genius, but not even close. So I took an IQ test when I was a kid and I came out as 110, which puts me slightly above average, but not by very much. On the other hand, my boyfriend got tested as a kid and much like Sheldon in the Big Bang Theory, I'm not crazy, my mother had me tested. He came out as having a genius level IQ, like bonus Mensa. I feel really stupid. I also don't think, considering as my boyfriend is a quote-unquote genius, whether he uh, fits with Russo's description. Is he continually burning, but never consumes? Well, if he's starting any fires in my house, then we're gonna have problems. <laughs> But one person who is burning and does consume himself is Victor Frankenstein. We have this romantic idea of the single genius who reshapes a narrative about the world in Victor Frankenstein. So, he if he is the romantic genius, why is he so rubbish? He's the enlightenment man, like the perfect enlightenment rationalist. But he also has this inspiration from the romantic hero, the romantic genius. We're going to give Victor his own episode, I think, because he is a very, very complex man. But just note it down on your post-it note, your mental post-it note. He is the romantic genius. The other thing romantics are well into is the idea that nothing is off limits. There is nothing that says no. This only reinforces Victor Frankenstein as a romantic genius. Even when it came to religion, there is no like, oh, we can't even talk about that. For example, William Blake, whose tombstone is actually right next to Old Street Station, and I really recommend you go and see it, it's actually really lovely, is described as writer and prophet on his memorial. He felt God was a being who he had a personal relationship with. William Wordsworth so saw nature as being his spirituality. Anything that takes the veneration of God and is like, no, nothing is off limits. I'm going for it. That's romanticism. However, it also links into enlightenment because if they were like, if I can't see God, he's not there. And someone who walked this line between the romantic view of divinity and the enlightenment view of the of divinity was Percy Bysshe Shelley. He notoriously got himself kicked out of Cambridge University by declaring himself to be an atheist and writing his pamphlet on atheism. His argument was, if you've seen God or heard God, you must believe in him. If you haven't, you just believe in other people. If you haven't seen God specifically, like just showing up, then there's no need to believe in them, believe in him. It's the um, act of will. You are choosing to believe in God, whereas you don't really need to if you haven't seen him, according to PBS. Percy Biss Shelley. Victor, too, does not necessarily believe in God because he is acting as God. Think of the rhetoric around things like Frankenstein foods, like we're meddling with powers that we should not meddle with. He is that romantic who's gone too far. So is Frankenstein a romantic book? 
Well, the answer is yes and no. It would be impossible to say that Mary Shelley was not a romantic, considering the circles that she moved in, her husband and Lord Byron to name two. They believed in doing things unconventionally, breaking the rules. The very fact that Mary Shelley ran off and had children with the old PBS before they were married kind of says that. Their obsession with freedom and doing the right thing, well, I mean the right thing morally rather than the right thing society wanted, yeah, they are romantics. The fact that the book Frankenstein is so cynical and slightly detached from the ideas of the Enlightenment also places it as being a romantic book. She's not wholeheartedly supporting Enlightenment rationalism. She's been a little bit sceptical of it. She's being a little bit, hmm, is this gonna work? I don't know. But on the other hand, it is a book that's a product of the Enlightenment, with two Enlightenment philosophers as parents, growing up in this ridiculously Enlightenment household. There is absolutely no way that Mary could not have been a child of the Enlightenment. Frankenstein walks this weird line between the two. There's a lot of passages about the sublime, about nature, about nature cropping up over and over again. And she's building on these philosophers like Rousseau who want to talk about emotions, who want to talk about feelings. It's a very individually centred book on the exploration of one individual at a time through letters but it's also a book that deals with the legacy of the enlightenment with the enlightenment happening around us offering a counterpoint i think it is a romantic book to be honest i am going with yes but I am more than willing to take take a little uh, take a little debate on that if someone else wants to tell me it's an enlightenment book. I I will fight them on that and probably lose because I am terrible at fighting. Right, if you take away nothing else from this, it's that I'm terrible at fighting. Romanticism, inspiration from within connections with the sublime, the emotions, the individuality, sharing yourself with the world. Wordsworth said poetry is a moment recollected in contemplation. We're taking something that happened to us as people and sharing it. Wonderful, right? Ah, I've got, a, I'm a big, big props to the romantics, actually. I used to hate them, but uh, we've grown to love each other. Much like Byron and PBS, we are now frenemies. Thank you very, very much for listening. I am your host, Catherine. Check out my stuff on straighttalkingenglish.co.uk. If you do a forward slash and then books, you can buy my books. If you do forward slash support the show, you can officially support the show. Give me a little donation. I would really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Don't forget, Frankenstein book comes out very soon. Tweet me, str 8 English on Twitter. Check out my YouTube. I will be back next week to talk about gothic things. Mm-hmm.